is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Our topic today is losing it at work, preventing violence in the workplace a very real and present danger. Have you ever been a target of violence in the workplace or been fearful of a coworker? Have you felt bullied or threatened? Is there escalating agitation or aggression? What are you to do when you perceive a threat from another? Do you report it? When are words more than just words? What is your employer's responsibility? Is intervention needed? Are there legal issues? If you're an employer, what are you to do? PIC Classified will discuss these questions from experts who specialize in identifying and addressing violence risk prediction. Psychologist Dr. Michael Corcoran, private investigator James Kaywood, and attorney Sue Vandermeiden will speak to this stressful dilemma and focus on recommendations. So all three are here with me today, Dr. Mike, Jim, and Sue Ann. And uh, I'm going to turn it over now to Jim Kaywood, who will talk to you about uh, he is the first contact usually when there's a violence workplace incident. Jim, are you there? I am, Francie. How are you this morning? Great. Thanks for being with us. Oh, you bet. Yeah, this is an interesting area of practice uh, that's really fairly new. Um, When I started with my first case in 1985, um, no one really knew what to do with these kinds of things. They figured that there'd be one of these in a particular uh, period of time of a company or, or an individual. And so in the first case in mine, they called me and basically said, a guy's taking drugs, he's threatened to kill the CEO of a company, um, and is he going to do it? And can you help us? And I had no idea. I was a corporate security guy with, and a private investigator. I'd been doing a lot of corporate work, uh, having come out of law enforcement and... So it was an open, you know, new experience. And so we went in and we tried to act like we were HR people or something, and, and ultimately he came back the next day with a thirty eight handgun and attempted to get in and shoot people. And we stopped him from doing that. And for me, it was a very large uh, new world, and I wanted to learn more about it. And so from that, um, we've had a chance to learn a great deal. But the field itself... We've gotten to the point now where we're pretty good at this. Um, People call us and they say, you know, is Johnny or Janie, they're doing these things, they're saying these things, are they going to hurt us? And we all all go through a process by which we make that determination and try to deflect them away from violence. The whole point is 
not getting them arrested, not necessarily putting them in mental institutions, not necessarily doing any particular thing, but being sensitive to the case facts and who the individual is and getting them to willingly choose not to commit an act of violence. So, What are the first signs, Jim, when well, yeah. what would give you cause for alarm? Absolutely. I mean, it, really what it is, what I tell people is, you know, we could give you ten warning signs and there's a bunch of lists out there for people doing this stuff. Bottom line is this. If the little hairs on the back of your neck stand up or you find yourself looking at someone's behavior and going, wow, that's really strange, you ought to start paying some, te- some attention. Your instincts are telling you there's something odd there. And if it reaches the point where you're uncomfortable, if you've got the process, report it to somebody. Let them know. I mean, it's, you know that old AMCO commercial, you know, this is the sound of a transmission that's really bad and this is a sound of transmission that's not? Well, you know what? We're not very good at sorting this stuff out unless you've had some additional training. So if you, if you hear a sound, <laughs> take it to a mechanic, and in this case, take it to someone who can actually give you some better assessment. Now, Jim, you've been a private investigator how long? Uh, since 1982. All right, and you started this in 1985. I did. Now, you and Dr. Mike, who's with us today, are the co-authors of a book called Violence Assessment and Intervention, The Practitioner's Handbook. Is that mm-hmm. correct? That is correct. And is, does this book provide some resources for uh, folks to identify potential threats and uh, give them an idea what to do about them? Well, it certainly gives a roadmap for how an assessment process might look like and absolutely talks about behavior and what to do. The book itself is geared to people like Dr. Mike and myself that, that actually do this for a living, um, but it's, we've certainly had some people t- uh, just buy it and have a chance to read it and have found it helpful in terms of sorting out some of their own issues. Absolutely. What would be the first thing you would do if you received a call from one of your clients saying that there was a problem? You know, my favorite phrase when they do that, Francie, is tell me about that. I mean, what it boils down to is this. I need to understand how they're, what they're perceiving as being an issue, what the behaviors are that they've, that they've seen or experienced, or what's been reported to them, and really get a sense of where we are in the arc of the problem. I think the first question I've got to ask myself when I get a call is, is this, is this a 911 call? Is this a situation that's so immediately dangerous where an individual needs to take immediate action versus having me be an assessor on the phone. And I'll give you an example. We had a case where a guy calls me from a law firm in California, and he says there's a guy in the lobby, and he's carrying a package. And I said, so tell me about that. And he said, well, we'd gotten a call that this guy may have a bomb. And I said, then put down the phone, get to another phone, call 911. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, put down the phone, <laughs> call 911. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not the time to use a risk assessor. The time to use a risk assessor is when you're in a situation where you've got some behavior where you don't know what the level of risk is, um, and then we try to get very quickly to understand what level you have. But uh, there are times you just should call 911. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's good advice. Now, can you give some examples of the kinds of things that people have called you about? Oh, absolutely. We've had a whole variety of stuff, uh, stalking cases, uh, clearly, um, you know, lots of domestic violence, boyfriend and girlfriend in the workplace, um, situations involving shareholders or customers or, you know, um, love interests. I mean, any kind of human interaction you can possibly imagine, young and old, educated and non-educated, I mean, the whole range of human experience, and people just uh, act strangely and, and make threats and, and in some cases approach and try to harm. So a whole varieties. 
and are there um, are there specific uh, actions that would happen that would give more rise to alarm than others? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you know, certainly, you know, when people start calling people on the phone and they start leaving messages and doing other things, I mean, that's certainly something to pay attention to because someone's spending a lot of time thinking about things. And that's more than usual. Everyone gets angry occasionally. Everyone gets upset uh, or gets defensive or resentful. Um, and they lash out at people. And that's, that's just the human experience. But when it becomes a pattern, particularly one that, that is outside the norm of your experience, you know, some businesses like bars or some business or some or relationships like personal relationships, there may be more contentiousness in it or there may be a kind of a baseline there when it changes from whatever you're used to that's when you really start should start paying attention so every industry has its own little set points and every relationship and in interaction has a set point and when it goes beyond that that's when you should start paying attention so an employer has to be concerned if somebody is receiving a threat not only from somebody they work with which could be a potential threat as well but somebody anybody from the outside well, and that's true, and it's both, that's both a regulatory issue and a legal issue. You know, I'm going to throw it over to Sue Ann here for a second. Okay. Sue Ann, you want to give us some understanding of what, what an employer might be exposed to in terms of liability if they didn't address an internal internal threat, external threat? Hi, thank you. Yes, this is Sue Ann Danamizing. You know, it's interesting from the employment context, the employer has a number of issues that they're trying to deal with. One, of course, is to keep their coworkers safe. And when you work with the threat assessment exercise you did with Dr. Mike, of course, you have their desire to gain as much information as possible. Do you have to balance their desire for information against the competing interests of privacy, confidentiality, defamation, and negligence and all of those legal contexts? But in terms of in terms of liability. Pretty much the the regulation and the law doesn't care whether or not the threat's an internal or an external threat. It's pretty much that people need to be protected in the workplace? Well, certainly if it impacts the workplace, if you have an employee who is at risk, whether it's from a coworker, a vendor, a client, a domestic partner, whatever it is, they do have an interest in protecting them. They have certain duties and responsibilities under various laws in different jurisdictions to protect their employees' rights. Yep. Let, let me just interject here, Sue Ann, uh, and explain to our listeners that uh, Sue Ann Vandermeiden is the founding partner of Vandermeiden Block in Sacramento, California, and specializes in employment law, litigating employment matters in both state and federal courts and all kinds of administrative forums, and she's often uh, negotiating resolving matters that have to do with uh, compli- workplace compliance, harassment, discrimination, retaliation, and the threat assessment that we've been talking about and works closely with Dr. Mike and Jim. So go ahead, exactly. And, you know, I've been dealing with employment law since 1993, and I was first introduced to the complex world of violence in the context of a workplace matter about nine to ten years ago. I had a large healthcare client that called me as their lawyer, and they said, hey, we have this night shift employee who told a co-worker he was going to kill 18 people. And, oh, by the way, he has a list of the 18 people. Well, I certainly knew enough to advise him through the internal investigative process to determine whether or not he actually had made the threats, to determine whether or not he actually had a list of 18 people, and could advise them through the termination process. But what I didn't know 
was whether or not he actually would kill these 18 people, whether or not we terminated him. And so at that point, I reached out to Jim, and we worked the case together, me from the legal standpoint, him from the threat assessment standpoint. That's right. And then, Jim, what, what was the first thing Sue Ann said to you? Do you remember? Uh, hello. <laughs> Actually, you know, that was the, one of the first times that she and I met. We'd been, re- you know, she reached out to the community and, and found me, and so we ended up uh, meeting in a conference room with a bunch of doctors sitting in the room who were all uh, playing doctor, um, but not in an effective way. And actually, the, the first thing we did was, you know, she said, you know, what do we do from here? And I said, let's gather some more information. And so we pretty much set about very quickly uh, milking all these doctors, uh, not of their what they believed was going to happen, but what was the actual behavior of this person. Hang on to that thought, Jim, okay. would you? Yep. We need to go to a break. All right. This is PI's Declassified. More coming up. Stay tuned. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today we're talking with violence assessment experts who specialize in identifying and addressing violence prediction about what to do about what receiving threat about receiving threats in the workplace. Psychologist Dr. Michael Corcoran, private investigator James Kaywood, and attorney Sue Ann Vandermeiden are here with us today. And we were just uh, I broke off Jim at the break. Jim, I think I broke you off in the middle of a sentence. So you want to pick <laughs> up from there? Absolutely. So we started doing some information gathering, and it's important when you're talking to people who have this information, uh, much like these doctors did in this particular case, to get away from what they believe is going to happen and get just down to the behavior itself of the individual. And once we get that information, uh, both the verbal behavior and the physical behavior, that gives us a much better sense of where we need to go from there. But I'm going to throw it over to Mike at that point, and he can walk you through what an assessment process looks like and some of the behaviors that are more important and why and uh, what it might mean. Mike? Sure. Thanks, Francie. Thanks, Jim. Certainly, we look at a, a total picture. I think it's, as Jim pointed out, there are a lot of these lists out there of things to look for, uh, some type of, some things are more dangerous than other things, and uh, it's amazing. Every website you go to on this stuff, you've got different lists. And quite frankly, I don't pay that close attention to them, because uh, if you looked at those lists, you would automatically say, gee, I know that person. And so it, it really is imperative that people collect as much data as possible. Uh, Jim is, is constantly harping on that. He's absolutely right. It's, it's critical that you not only understand the human behavior, uh, that you not only understand what the potentials are, but that you also understand what's going on in that person's life, that you also understand what are the potentials of the victim. Is the victim more attractive than a usual person? How about the environment? How does the environment contribute to it? So it's, it's really an elaborate process of collecting a lot of data and making sure that you've got all that and you've got all your T's crossed and your I's dotted. And it doesn't just happen in uh, just a, a half an hour or an hour. Uh, it really requires a, a lengthy process. And what you're really looking for, if I were try to sum it up in, in one word or less, uh, Jim was, was hitting around it, but what you're looking for from an individual is change. And I don't care if it's positive change or negative change. Uh, we always think about the guy that all of a sudden becomes a loner. Well, yeah, that's that's something, and I want to look at why. He changed for some reason. Why did he change? Maybe for no reason, but it may be that there's a problem going on. What about the guy that suddenly becomes more outgoing? I mean, we know from people that are ready to commit suicide, for example, that they all of a sudden become very outgoing, they become more gregarious, and they say thank you to people and goodbye to people, and all of a sudden the next day they're gone. So we got to look for change uh, more than anything else if we're looking for one specific thing. But it's it's a combination of a lot of things, and it's just not an easy process. Well, well what, let me ask you: if if I'm 
a listener and I think I may have a problem with somebody in my life, mm-hmm. give me some warning signals or give them some warning signals. Are things like, um, um, what about texting? You can get into anything. Uh, Jim said it best is, 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 does this bother you? What, what the law basically says is, or, and I'm not taking, uh, I want to take Suanne's uh, place here, but basically an employee has a duty to report anything that is bothersome. And sometimes employees are afraid that they'll overstep their boundaries or that they'll hurt somebody's feelings or that they're, they're, um, informing on somebody but it's gotten so serious now in our society uh, and really around the world where most uh, regulatory bodies are saying that yeah the employee has a duty as employer obviously has this duty to provide a safe work environment but the employee is part of that environment and they have a duty to bring the information forward so anything i don't care if it's a text i don't care if it's somebody that just uh it looks at you funny sometimes a person will just uh, stand behind somebody and watch them do their work kind of an intimidating factor sometimes they'll uh, uh go ahead and uh, spread gossip or rumors about them, or maybe they'll actually uh, uh, deliberately exclude them from certain things that are going on in the company. And and all those things, I mean, they're uncomfortable, and it raises your ire and it gets you concerned. And why is this happening? And maybe it's nothing. But at the same time, it could be something, especially if it happens more than once, and it's then the duty of the person to bring it forward so that people can then look into it and decide what's really happening. Well, and that's the biggest problem we have, Francie, is that people, there's minimization, rationalization, and denial, right? I mean, if you're, if you're interacting with someone and all of a sudden you start feeling really uncomfortable, the first reaction you're going to have is, you know what, oh, it's no big deal. It's just Johnny. There's just, you know, he's, oh, he acts this way occasionally. Or, Particularly you know, when it's at work. Is that correct? I'm sorry, and this is at work or anywhere. I mean, yeah. you're, in a, you're in a personal relationship, mm-hmm. and the individual just starts acting weird. And the first thing we do is we don't want to feel uncomfortable ourselves. So what we do is we just figure out a reason why that's no big deal. And so we shut ourselves down. And what Mike and I always find is when we go into these situations, I don't think we've ever seen a situation where we've gone in and the, the behavior that finally got reported to us is the first behavior. It's always months, weeks, months later that someone's been changed long before that, but no one thought to report it because they kept coming up with excuses why he was having a bad day or why she was saying these bad things. I mean, we've had people say to other people, I'm going to kill you. And it's like, oh, you're just kidding. No, right. they really weren't. <laughs> you really needed to be listening to them. That's really what they meant. <laughs> well, you know, we haven't talked about schools at all, but I think it was Columbine that really raised the national consciousness about violence in schools. Yes. And I think we all probably know at this point that there were some signals that other classmates could have identified had they realized that that was... Yeah that was going to be a problem. Absolutely. And actually, you know, here's the real tragedy, too, Francie, is that, you know, Columbine happened, and then years later we have Virginia Tech. Correct. And there's a huge amount of behavior at Virginia Tech that was the same behavior they should have been looking for at Columbine. We thought everyone knew to look for that now. And, of course, they didn't, you know, all the people there didn't see it either, and yet it was there to be seen. So it is really interesting to me that... You know, we're fighting human gravity, if you will. We're fighting the human tendency to not want to see bad things because we don't want to feel uncomfortable ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the behavior is, you, you know, usually there. 
And as Mike said, though, it's not just the bad stuff. I mean, here's a guy who's angry and aggressive and, and upset all the time, and anger itself doesn't make you violent, right? I mean, right. just because you're angry doesn't make you violent. And so all of a sudden he becomes a nice guy. And you're going, wow, that's a change. Isn't that great? But <laughs> why is the guy who's been angry and aggressive all this time all of a sudden become a good guy? He may have he made a decision, decision that, you know, he's figured out a way how to get out of this problem. Mm-hmm. Could be suicide, could be homicide, could be a combination of both. I mean, one of the things we have to understand that homicide and suicide are linked. In other words, in 38% of the mass murder incidents in the workplace or in schools, there's been homicide-suicide pairing. Whether or not you're looking at Columbine, whether or not you're looking at Virginia Tech, whether or not you're looking at 101 California, whether or not you're looking at all of, many of these major incidents of mass murder, someone has ended up killing others before they killed themselves. Interesting. So, so we have to look at all of we We both have to be looking at harm to self and harm to others when we're doing these kinds of assessments. Yeah. Well, you mentioned stalking. Go ahead. Suanne, go ahead. I was just going to point out, you've raised the issue of certain individuals' reluctance to bring forward the issues, and I think we're becoming more sophisticated and savvy both in the schools and the workplace now about the principle of first opportunity. And perhaps we can now educate employees and students to come forward when there's issues maybe that just raise concerns about bullying. Maybe they aren't threats of violence, but it is the bullying kind of behavior, the exclusions, the shunning, the, the you know, very poking at people that if they now bring those issues forward and the employer, the schools, et cetera, can deal with them earlier, and they do have tools to do that, to coach them through to intercede earlier and give them tools and maybe even prevent the escalation of these matters to the threats. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I think that's a that's what people miss sometimes. Everyone thinks that you're going to get someone in trouble if you report this. And actually, think about all the help you can do. I mean, think of someone who's in pain, someone's in crisis, and they're acting this way, and they're acting out against others because they really just are very unhappy. And if we get that information, I mean, most of Mike's and I, Mike's and my caseload are not high-risk cases. We're in the moderate-risk case range because, you know, people are trying to get to us early, and we can really help these people guide the situation so these people can have a better, more productive life, whether or not it's a kid who's just going through a, a really hard time or whether or not it's an, another human being. And, you know, maybe they can reclaim their lives and they don't have to be this way and they don't have to get in further trouble and possibly get killed. This is a legal question for Sue. Sue, are, are you in a position as counsel to recommend um, some kind of therapy for this person? You know, it's a complex question, of course, because you're dealing with disability laws, both federal and state, and they may vary in differing jurisdictions. But absolutely, if we can affect an employee in a positive way, catch them at an early stage, perhaps provide them uh, some sort of therapy earlier. Many employers, at least in California and certainly around the United States, have programs whereby you can send the employees to you know, a few sessions of free therapy, and certainly we absolutely recommend that. Now, the question becomes a little trickier if you want to mandate that. In other words, if if you would terminate an employee for misconduct or bad behavior, but in lieu of termination, perhaps as a last chance agreement, you require them to attend the therapy. Those are trickier issues that you want to make sure that you're working through legal counsel and making sure you understand the various laws that impact that. But, yes, if we can help an employee in that way, Absolutely. And uh, you're talking about uh, the EAPs, the Employee Assisted Programs, that many of the, the kind of medium to large size companies have. That is one op- option, yes. There's also county mental health. 
I mean, county mental health resources can be available, particularly in North America, Canada and the U.S., um, that can be helpful in some of these cases that, that are low cost or no cost. Well, um, and for, frankly, I've had Jim come in on many occasions to work with employees of my clients to work with the individual, figure out where they are and how we might help them, and, and so he's played that role as well. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. All right. Well, we are just, we're coming up to a break here shortly, and so I don't want to uh, put you guys in a position of cutting you off again. But uh, I understand there are uh, a lot of national statistics. Um, I read that the National Crime Victimization Survey says that there's something like 2 million assaults and threats of violence against Americans at work annually. That's right. And the most common type is assault with, you know, on probably more than half of those. Yeah, there's a, there's definitely, I mean, when you're looking at 120 employed people, 120 million employed people in the U.S., I mean, you look at 2 million and you're thinking, oh, you know, that's not that big a deal. But, you know, it is a big deal. Um, and there's a lot more. There's about 16 million people get threatened on the job every year. All right. We'll be talking more about violence in the workplace and what to do about it coming up. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. News. 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 Opinion. Opinion. 
your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Have you ever been a target of violence in the workplace or been fearful of a coworker? Private investigator James K. Wood, along with psychologist Michael Corcoran and attorney Sue Vandermeiden, are discussing how to respond to this uncomfortable predicament. Sue, uh, we were just talking while we were off the break about what legal remedies that can be put in place by an employer to um, assess and handle these kinds of situations. Right, and you know there's several ways to look at this. Of course, the the first thing as an employer you want to do is make sure you're hiring the right people. And in doing that, it's important to do all of the reference checks, background screening, and all of the things that you do initially to make sure you bring in the right people in. Of course, in doing so, you want to make sure you are operating under the governing regulations. There's federal laws that govern the collection, dissemination, and use of information, there's local laws, so depending on the jurisdictions, you want to be familiar with that, but certainly conducting a good background check is important, and then what's interesting is once you have an employee in place, and at that point, if misconduct arises, then what are your obligations and responsibilities as an employer when you want to gather all this information to determine whether or not this individual has, A, engaged in misconduct, and B, uh, whether or not they actually pose a risk of harm. And in all of those instances, you have all these governing regulations you want to be careful about so that you're not invading privacy, you're not breaching confidentiality, you're not avoiding your responsibilities about duties to all of your employees. So you've got all these competing interests that are happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. All right. So one of the things about employee screening is, you know, getting some behavioral information in there. I mean, when you're doing these interviews with these people and you're hiring them, you should be asking behavioral-based questions. I mean, you don't, there's, you know, certainly illegal questions you can ask, but what about a legal question? What about, you know, what makes you angry? What about makes you, what, what makes you happy on the job? You start asking some of these emotion-based questions and they're harder to prep for in terms of doing, you know, the standard answers, but it also gives you some real insight in terms of whether or not these individuals are going to be a good fit for you uh, in your organization. I mean, workplaces are different, and if a guy's not, or a gal's not going to fit in, it's going to cause some friction. So you're talking about, Jim, what we would call in the field or in the private investigation profession as a security-type interview? Well, you know, yeah, but it doesn't have to be that structured. Um, it could be more like a um, behavioral-based interview would probably be a better way to say it and, and kind of move away from the facts and the figures and start getting into how this how this person, what makes this person happy or sad or angry. Um, I love the question of, you know, on your last job, tell me about the time you were the angriest. Because if someone claims they never get angry on the job, they're lying. (laughs) Already a bad thing. Um, And then was it reasonable? 
was it reasonable that I got angry? And then what happened afterwards? Did they just shut off that coworker or that customer and they never wanted to deal with them again, which is pretty childish behavior, or did they figure out a way to work through it? Okay. Um, you know, I, 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 excuse me, I think your points are brilliant, Jim, and, and it actually is very helpful to have that kind of information. The reality of the employment context in many instances is that employers often conduct interviews by panels, and they have these set lists of questions, and they're not allowed to gain the kind of information that Jim's suggesting, which is so invaluable. Yeah, yeah, they just don't put it on their, their menu, and we need to change the menu in terms of how they interview. Yeah. So do you, um, Sue Ann, do you advise employers on uh, conducting all of their employee interviews with these kinds of questions? Well, certainly if you have an employer that has that flexibility, if you're in the public sector or some government agencies, they don't do it. But if you have the ability and the flexibility to ask those kinds of questions, absolutely. And, of course, we have to balance that again by certain prohibited questions. Certainly you can't ask any questions that may garner information under various federal and state disability laws sure. and other uh, you know, confidential information that you can't obtain without authorization. But to the extent that the employee would gain that information. One of my favorite questions, many times other employers are reluctant to give information to a, a prospective employer because of concerns of defamation. If, in other words, if they fired an employee because of misconduct, they're reluctant to tell anybody about it because they're fearful of be, being hit with a defamation claim. But one of my favorite questions to have an employer ask is this, would you rehire this employee? And all they have to say is yes or no, and that gives you a tremendous amount of information. But sure. if you have the ability to get the emotion-based kinds of questions that Jim suggested, all the better. All right. So, Jim, how would you recommend, uh, based on your experience, mm -hmm. um, how would you recommend an employer who doesn't have a Jim Kaywood <laughs> to do the interviews for them, how would you suggest they, they handle those? Well, I, I think, first of all, is, is to talk with an attorney um, and, and make sure that, as Sue Ann said, that they avoid, you know, all the obvious red flag questions. But after that, it's, it's really a matter of taking a look at their workplace and what kind of workplace do they want to have? What kind of environment, what kind of feeling do they want to have when people come to work at, during the day? Do they just care about getting the, the job done? Do they want people that are just focused, task-focused? Or do they really want people that are going to be interacting with customers and, and being kind of open to them? And then it's a matter of how do you begin to ask questions to get to that information. Um, and people are some fairly sophisticated employers do this. We had a, we had a client that was one of the big um, jewelry companies in the United States with offices in Europe, and they would hire me to do these interviews um, just around behavior, whether or not this individual would fit in. And the first time they chose not to use me, um, they ended up having a quarter of a million dollar loss. The person they hired just on paper pencil test Oops. ended up walking in and stealing within uh, seven uh, days, stole a quarter of a million dollar necklace. Um, and so it, it's, it's really just a matter of spending the time. It, you know, my, one of my favorite phrases in the world, Francis, is you pay now or you pay later, but you always pay more later. And it seems to be true in all parts of life. And this is true, too. If you That's spend an true. extra 15 minutes in an interview, you're going to get a better result. That's true. You know, we have a caller, uh, Ben Harrell from San Diego, California, who is the proprietor and curator of PI Museum, is joining us on the line. Are you there, Ben? I am, Francie. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? on your program. Well, welcome. And, and I believe you know Jim Kaywood. <laughs> yes. How are you? 
Hello, and thank you, guests, for being on this historic second program. Absolutely. And do you have questions, Ben, about the topic we're talking about today? Uh, not specific questions about it, but I can tell you that in the library of the PI Museum, uh, there are many references to this subject matter going back to the uh, early 1900s. And, in fact, a UC Davis professor is doing a book about private investigators circa 1919 about the subject of uh, workplace uh, conditions as they relate to unions, forming unions, and the employer's role in dealing with that in a proper manner. Uh, and I'm sure that in that treatise that was done by one particular uh, investigator that I loaned him uh, the book for his research, I'm sure that this topic uh, was mentioned. I just don't have it in front of me to reference it. But this is a subject matter that's been around for many, many, many years in our profession, and it will always be around, and it's one that every investigator should be armed and equipped uh, as a professional to deal with. And I guess the uh, probably the most famous one that you're familiar with would be Pinkerton's uh, intervention of the death of Abraham Lincoln. That's correct. Um, there was a period in our history where our beloved uh, President Abraham Lincoln was a, a reviled and very hated man, and the politicians, business community, and law enforcement communities came together to form a conspiracy to murder Lincoln on his route to Washington to be sworn in, and that was defeated by America's most prominent private investigator, Alan Pinkerton. So it's just one of many thousands of examples down through history where private investigators have made life better for the citizens of their communities and, in this case, their nation. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. Uh, did you have a question for either Dr. Mike or Attorney Sue Ann or Jim? Absolutely. Um, when you look in the mirror uh, the next time, ask yourself, what am I doing to make sure that the, the encyclopedic knowledge that I've worked very long and hard to acquire, how am I making sure that it's passed on to the next generation of private eyes? And if you're not doing something every day to ensure that that happens, <clears throat> then basically you're not living up to the challenge of your gift because both of you have a gift, and it's your responsibility to pass it on to the next generation of private investigators. And Jim and Dr. Mike have both done that in authoring their book, which I'll mention again, Violence Assessment and Intervention, the Practitioner's Got Handbook. Uh, I believe you can get that on Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's, it's quite a hefty little book, I'll tell you. I went to buy it myself, and it's, uh, it's quite a text. <laughs> well, thank you for doing that. That's very, very important. And one of these days I'll look to have that on the shelf of the PI Museum for the researchers that I envision in, in years ahead to come to the museum and do serious research on our profession because we all know, those of us in the profession, that the most important thing we can do uh, is to share who we are and what we do uh, to others so that people can be better informed and not think that we're like the, the TV and, uh, and uh, print um, private investigators you know, that, that bend the laws and, and carry guns and, and drive fast cars. That's not who we are and that's not what we do. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Let me take you back. One of the uh, we've been talking a lot about reporting incidents, but we really haven't discussed much about documenting incidents. What would you suggest doing about that? Um, through the three of you, Dr. Mike, Sue Ann, and Jim. Well, Mike, I mean, do you want to do you want to take that up? Because you and I have had conversations about reporting and how, how we need to do it. 
And, and part of the issue is, of course, what is really necessary and what is the point of it. A lot of employers obviously want a paper trail because that's what they're used to. Uh, but the question becomes, then, what happens to that document? Certainly what I always ask for when I get called in is, uh, who's the attorney? Because I want to immediately uh, get under the confidentiality umbrella of the attorney. Uh, if they don't have an attorney, I recommend they get one so that we can do that. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, prefer not to document uh, the actual incident or the case because I don't know where those notes are going to end up, and it's really kind of a, a private thing. So we, we try not to. If it's need be for court and we have to have and present something, we do so. But by and large, we try to stay away from that. Okay, thank you very much. We need to go to a break right now. Thank you, Dr. Mike. Thank you, Ben, for calling in. Thank you, Sue Ann, and thank you, Jim. We'll be right back. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, Radio to Thrive By. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Whether you are an employee or an employer, it's important to know what to do when an employee is bullied or threatened, if there is escalating aggression, or they even fear for their lives. Um, I believe, Sue Ann, I would like you to just, uh, for the attorneys that may be listening or may listen to this program at a later time, would you just talk to them very briefly about uh, what they should get involved in? You know, we attorneys like to think we're very smart, educated people, and hopefully we really are, but we have to recognize our limitations. Our expertise is in the area of law, and the world of violence has really raised the awareness that a multidisciplinary team is critical because we don't have the expertise of a Dr. Mike or a Jim Kaywood in determining whether or not an individual poses a risk of harm. So while we may advise the employer or the client through all of the legal issues, it's absolutely imperative that we have a team of experts around us that work in this area and know the threat assessment piece of it. Very good. Very good. Thank you so much. Uh, well, thank you to psychologist Dr. Michael Corcoran, attorney Sue Vandermeiden, and private investigator James Kaywood, all violence assessment experts. Have been chatting today about this important topic and focusing on recommendations for addressing and reducing threats in the workplace. Thank you also to our sponsors, Merlin Information Services, data solutions providing information about people, businesses, and assets, and the Brownyard Program's insurance for private investigators and security professionals who make this show possible. Next week, I'll be talking to Boston private investigator and cold case specialist Tom Shamshack, along with the family members of Molly Ann Bish. Molly Ann Bish was a 16-year-old who was a lifeguard in Warren, Massachusetts, who was abducted while she was working and subsequently murdered. The family of Molly Bish have formed the Molly, Molly Bish Foundation, and we will be talking to them along with Tom Shamshack, who is a former chief of police in the Boston area. So tune in next week as we declassify another episode from the fascinating files of private investigation. It's PIs Declassified. And I'm Francie Kaler. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.